Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost as the Lord's Church gathers together to receive Christ's body and blood. The Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah 31 verses 7 through 9. The epistle text from Hebrews chapter 7 verses 23 through 28 and the gospel reading from Mark chapter 10 verses 46 through 52. So what you'll notice here first is that we still have was it five years left in the church five five weeks left in the church calendar. We go there are well to count it by propers propers don't match up with the Sunday of the church year. So it is proper 25 this weekend. Sometimes that will be the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost, as it is this year in 2021, but it probably won't be three years from now. That moves around based on when Christmas and Easter fall. But the point I'm making here is that you get 29 propers, and we lose two of the latter ones each year, in the lectionary to Reformation Day and All Saints Day. And so it depends on the year which two weekends get replaced based on just how things fall in the calendar. So this year it will be the Propers 26 and 27 that we skip, which will, in the Gospel, take us past Mark chapters 11 and 12, and in the Epistle it's going to take us past Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, so we'll skip over those things as we wait to come back together again afterwards. Now, Reformation Sunday coming up next weekend for us. We'll look at the specific text for that day. So as we look today at Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 9 to start, just as a reminder about this book, it's mostly dark. And this is a book where the Lord uses Jeremiah the prophet to speak about the destruction that is coming upon them for their sins. Judah is going to be destroyed. And there is sadness over this. There is lamentation over this, which becomes its own book, right? And the book even ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. This chapter, chapter 31, has one of the rare glimpses of restoration. In fact, the whole chapter is about that restoration. And the most, probably most well-known part of the book is verses 31 through 34 of chapter 31. We read those earlier this year in Lent 5. And so we don't see them today. But we do get another part of this restoration together. Let's go ahead and read the whole text and then come back and take a look. For thus says Yahweh, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together. A great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path, in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. This is the word of the Lord. Now, When we come back through it, I'm going to encourage you to see it two different ways. But let's look through uh, what the prophet was saying to the people at that time. What is God's message to Judah? It's a message of restoration. 
that there is hope. So it begins with that common prophetic speech. I mean, the prophets often say this little phrase, thus says Yahweh. You could, I guess, go to Bible Gateway or whatever your Bible app is and type that little phrase in in quotation marks and see just how many times it shows up. It's going to be many. So the prophet, through God, tells the people to sing aloud with gladness. Why? Why? I mean, in the midst of this book of darkness and despair, of destruction of Jerusalem, why sing aloud? Well, because there's going to be a restoration. Yes, destruction is going to come. Yes, suffering and pain and death will come. But, but there will be a restoration. You may already know where I'm going with the idea that I said we'd look at it from two different perspectives. But hold on to that. So, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, so the people of God. Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Why are they the chief of the nations? Because they're his. They are God's holy people, his set-apart people. So proclaim, give praise, and say. That reminds me of that little phrase we sing, rejoice, give thanks, and say. So here are the words to sing. O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Their, their song is a prayer. Sing this. Sing it again and again and again. Sing it that the Lord may hear you and do it. Like prayer actually does something. The Lord hears our prayer and he responds. So pray it, sing it, and he will. The Lord will work to save the remnant of Israel, and he will do so through the Persian king Cyrus in 538 BC, who comes and destroys Babylon, takes the people of God of Judah, and sends them home and even offers to help pay re- to rebuild it all. You can read about that stuff in Ezra and Nehemiah. I will bring them. So God is the one acting. God is the one who's about to restore. It's a short song. Just noticing it's already over, right? Not a long one. Not hard to memorize. Sing this. I will bring them. God is going to restore them, And it is a restoration. He's bringing them from the north country. That's a reference to the, the route that people would travel on the way to or from Assyria and Babylon. You would basically, from Babylon, you'd be turning westward uh, before you get closer, and then you'd, then you'd turn south. So you, instead of crossing the Jordan River, you would cross up north of the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Canareth in Old Testament days. And then you would turn southward and you would go down towards Jerusalem. God is not only going to bring them back from Babylon, though. He will gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Now, I was reading this not long ago. This is common language, actually, in the Old Testament. God's warning that he would do this. And Nehemiah is going to pick up on that to make that connection again to Nehemiah. As I read this text recently from Nehemiah 1, verses 8 and 9, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the earth, from there I will gather them 
and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Wondrous connection as we take and see this idea that the Lord would gather them again. So he scattered them in their unfaithfulness. At the time that Judah is destroyed, not everyone is carried into Babylon, into exile. We know Jeremiah himself doesn't even end up there. He ends up down south towards Egypt where he's killed by Jews a few years later. So God is going to bring his people back from all over the place, not just from one spot. Hold on to the the second perspective on that. It's coming. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, all of them together. So it doesn't matter what state or status a person is in, the Lord will scat, He will spare, he will gather his remnant. The people of God will be brought home. A great company. They shall return here. That is, to his throne in Jerusalem, to the place where he has promised he will place his name to dwell there, from the place that he has promised to Moses that will be the spot from which he speaks his word to his people. Verse 9, with weeping they shall come, is an interesting little phrase. I guess you could take this one in two directions. Are they coming because they're broken in grief? So they've been weeping, they've been crying out in prayer, and the Lord has heard that prayer, and now they're still praying as they're being gathered. Or are they crying out in great joy? Tears of joy. They're weeping because it is tremendous that they have been rescued. They are overjoyed, and their emotions can't handle it. Maybe it's a mixture of the two. I I don't really know. They come with pleas for mercy. And those pleas are answered. The Lord answers those prayers and he leads them back. He brings them out of Babylon, out of the ends of the earth. He returns them to the home in the promised land that he had once given to them generations before. The next part will probably remind you of Psalm 23, right? I will make them walk by brooks of water. The Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. Note again, the Lord is the one doing the verb, the work, I will make them. And a brook of water is going to provide. There's a reason why most ancient cities were built, not even ancient, but historically speaking, most cities were built near water. It was much easier to sustain a people. I mean, even think of the United States in its earlier days. Why is St. Louis a thing? Well, they were able to, they landed oftentimes down in the Gulf. They traveled up the Mississippi and they established trade cities. And St. Louis being right there at the hub of three different rivers was quite an easy choice. You look at the Look at a Google Maps image or whatever satellite imagery you want to look at. But look at it near rivers in the Middle East. And you will see as you're zoomed out and you know you can look at the area around the rivers there, you'll see green. But when you move away from the rivers, you see a bunch of brown. There's a reason for this. 
God uses water to provide life. And so he is going to give them that gift, and he's going to make them walk in a straight path. And that is, that is a reference then to the keeping of God's commandments. Right? We mentioned that already from the Nehemiah cross-reference to verse 9. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. So we see that here as well. That they are going to do the word of the Lord. They're going to keep his commands and they won't stumble. They won't fall. For I am a father to Israel. The people of Israel, the people of Judah that we're talking about here are going to be restored. He's going to provide for them. He's going to provide for them all their days. Ephraim is my firstborn. Now that, that's an unusual phrase, at least on the surface. Ephraim is not God's firstborn. The, the referent here of a firstborn son is to the one who, well, is literally that. He's the first one to leave the womb of the mother. Who is the firstborn well, backing up, Ephraim is the son of Joseph. Ephraim is not even Joseph's firstborn son. That would have been Manasseh. And even of grandfather, Joseph is not the firstborn son of Jacob. That would have been Reuben. We'll come back to that here in a little bit, but for now, just noteworthy, it is the kingdom of God. It is his people his nation. And the house of Joseph is sometimes used to be a reference to that. And that's what it is here. The house of Joseph, who is Jacob's favorite son, this is his people, God's people. Now, I've been saying and kind of hinting at the idea that you can take this text in more than one way, and that is that is the nature of many Old Testament prophecies. That you can see the more, the more immediate context of the thing, but you can also see a far greater fulfillment of it in Jesus. So, yes, 538 B.C. under Cyrus, that the Lord would save his people. He would deliver them from their time in Babylon. He would bring them back to the promised land. They would get to live in Judah again and rebuild Jerusalem. All of this is true and good and something worth praying for and rejoicing in for those people. However, that's not all this teaches us. Take the text again. Read it back through as though about Jesus and the church, and you'll see something very similar. So thus says Yahweh, God has said this about us. Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, for God's people. Again, Israel, Jacob, is the the people of God. In the Old Testament time, that was a nation, a very specific location in this world. But now, it is not a geographic location. It is the church. So why sing aloud with gladness for the church? Because God is going to restore his church. 
He is going to lift up his bride. He's going to take her from the scattered parts of this broken world unto himself. I'm getting ahead of myself there, aren't I? So raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Again, as we described, this is God's people. and This is us. We are the New Testament people of God. We are, as 1 Peter 2 says it so very well, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 9. A holy nation. Us, you, me, no matter where you are listening to this podcast, you could be on the other side of the world from where I'm recording it. And yet we are a nation together. My kingdom is not of this world, the words of Jesus before Pontius Pilate on Good Friday. That's us. We are the people of God. We are the kingdom of God. We are the chief of the nations because we are his. And so we are to sing Oh Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And so we don't use, we don't use the, the name Yahweh very much in the church anymore because in Matthew 1, a new name is given to us. In Matthew 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that you will call his name, having spoken of the birth of Jesus, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is from the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is the Hebrew verb that means he saves. God himself gives us this new name by which we call upon him. So yes, indeed, Jesus, save your people. Save us. Remember the crowd chanting on Palm Sunday, Hosanna? Hosanna means save us now. Save us. Sing it. Proclaim it. The Lord will hear you and he will answer. He has promised that Christ will return and he has taught us to pray for that very thing. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. That's the prayer of the church right there. Revelation 22, 20. It's a short song. Oh Jesus, save us. Save your people. Verse 8, God will bring us from the north country, from our exile, from our time away from where we call home, which is Christ himself. He will gather us from all parts of this earth and he will bring us to himself. Everywhere on this planet, under every nation, there are Christians living there. God's people scattered to the edges of this earth, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news. And to all who believe and call upon that name of Christ, there is salvation. He will gather us together into a new promised land, a new paradise that is just for us. To live with Christ there forevermore. And look, it's the blind, it's the lame, it's everyone. The pregnant woman, yeah, her too, right? I mean... It's a little different than the blind and the lame. You, you see that in Jesus' ministry as he goes to the blind, he restores their sight, he goes to the lame, he, he builds them up so that they can walk again. Interaction with pregnant women. Not as much, right? There's no miracle needed for the pregnant woman. So, you know, as the twofold prophecy goes, 
Yeah, she's saved, they're saved, everyone's saved. The trust in the Lord. And this is good. A great company. The church triumphant, those who have gone before us. The church militant, those of us who are still fighting against sin, death, and the devil here and now. They shall return here. Now this is again God talking about his throne, although his throne is no longer located geographically over in Jerusalem. That Ark of the Covenant has been gone for a long time. Whether taken by the Lord to be in paradise, destroyed, or hidden and lost. I think it's one of the apocryphal books that argues for that one. Perhaps even Jeremiah, if I recall correctly, that he hid them in a cave somewhere. Don't spend the rest of your life in the caves of the Middle East looking for it. It's not needed. God's throne is his own. He can care for it. The Lord is in paradise, not on the copy, not on the shadow of the things to come. See the book of Hebrews for that one. But on the real thing, the throne itself. The throne that John sees in his vision in the book of Revelation. Surrounded by like a sapphire rainbow, a sea of of water that looks like glass. Just a, a wondrous description if you go read that one. will return here is to return to Christ. It's to return to paradise. And in that sense, we might even look at the Garden of Eden as God had originally created us to be and to live and to do. With weeping they shall come. Again, you could see the broken grief or the great joy. We are broken. We are grieving. And in our grief, we call out to the Lord. And he hears us and he answers and he He lives for us, and he gives us life. You can also see the great joy as we get to live forevermore. We get to eat the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom forever. And again, you can see both of those being combined. Although when we get there, once we are brought back, that grief is gone. And that will be rejoiced in as well. He also answers all of our pleas for mercy. He hears our prayers. He, he aids us. He helps us. I brought up Psalm 23 already that he makes us to walk by brooks of water. That in a straight path phrase is often spoken of scripturally in regards to Jesus himself. Right? Make straight the path for the Lord. And this is good and well for us to see that connection connecting it to Christ, as is always done by the Old Testament, right? Jesus showing the disciples on the road to Emmaus, how it all points to him. We also have Hebrews twelve thirteen. We are told to make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That's another spot where you see that straight path idea in at least the ESV text. There we are being encouraged to trust in the Lord. And that blind and lame idea is there too, in a sense. Verse 12, right before it, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The Lord will heal. The Lord will restore. So that we do not stumble. We will walk in the narrow way because the Lord guides us. The Lord is my shepherd. 
He is father to Israel, so he is our father who provides for us. On this one, I'm going to take you to Matthew now. Um, look these up real quick. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the Lord's Prayer. You know this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How does Jesus invite us to pray to him? Right? Also Matthew chapter 7. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What a beautiful verse that is, right? I'm a father. I've got four little girls. And I, I love to give them gifts. I love to care for them and give them the things that they need in this world. It is it's part of my role, right? And if I can take care of them, and I'm just a broken sinner, and they're broken sinners too, but if I'm a broken sinner and I can do such, such a thing, what about the Lord who is not a broken sinner? How much better gifts does he have to give? And does he give? Now, this is where I think that Ephraim is my firstborn becomes an even more prominent statement. Not only is this referencing just a firstborn son, you have the idea of, okay, what's the firstborn son? He's the heir. If you're talking about a king, his son gets to reign after him, his firstborn son. But even if you're not, the inheritance goes through that firstborn son whether it's all of it or the double portion. I hear that language in the Old Testament too. For us, we are not the firstborn son of the people of God. At least most of us, right? If you are listening to this and you are of Jewish descent, like you actually have that connection back to the family tree of Abraham, then physically you are that, well, you're probably not first, although you could be a firstborn son, I guess. But this is bigger than that. And intentionally so, this is pointing out all people. That the Lord does not have to choose his firstborn by the rules of this world. Just as Jesus does not have to only save the Jews, but he also can save the Gentiles. Indeed, it was too light a thing for him to only save the people of Israel, but that the Lord would send him to all nations. We learn that from one of the servant songs in Isaiah. So again, Ephraim is not the firstborn. He's not the firstborn of his own father, of Joseph. That was Manasseh. And and together, that family tree isn't the firstborn of Jacob. Joseph is not the firstborn of Jacob. The firstborn of Jacob was Reuben. Reuben sinned against his father and against the Lord, and so his father stripped him of the rank, passed it on to his next in line, which was Judah, from whom we actually get Jesus. But even at that, we're not talking about Judah as the firstborn here. We're talking about someone entirely different. We're talking about Joseph's son. And Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. And yet, when Joseph when Joseph seeks to get his father's blessing upon his sons, the blessing is switched around. And instead of the blessing being given to the firstborn son, the hands are crossed and the blessing is spoken over Ephraim. 
the Lord can choose to be his people, whom the Lord wants his people to be. He doesn't have to follow a family tree. He can choose you, and he can bring you into the family through the waters of holy baptism, as he has done for every single Gentile person who has become a part of his kingdom. And that number is beyond our counting, more than the sand on the seashore. We are a great company, together, Jew and Gentile alike. I hope you can see all the connections, both in the sense of looking at this text as the prophecy of the old, looking forward to Cyrus and the deliverance he would give, but also pointing us forward to Jesus and how he would rescue and redeem us and bring us to paradise. Our epistle text is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. We'll do it two paragraphs here, 23 through 25 first. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, we start here with the idea, well, first of all, the name hasn't shown up. This is Jesus that we're talking about in the text. The former priests, so we look back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, uh, the tabernacle and the service of the Levites. We look to the temple uh, that would then stand for several centuries after that. All the different sacrifices that they performed, all the blood shed of the animals, all the grain offerings, the burnt offerings, all these things that they did. Those priests, well, they were many in number. Why? Because they died. They didn't last forever, so you had to replace them. That's easy to see with anything in this broken and fallen world, right? Your light bulbs in your house. Well, if they were made better, you'd never have to replace them. But, alas, you do. Your batteries burn out. you got to replace them. Well, it's the same way of us people in this broken world. If we could fill the earth and we were perfect, then we wouldn't need any more children. Because we would subdue the earth, we'd rule over it, we'd care for everything, just as the Lord had created everything to be cared for by us as the stewards of it, and it would be good. But that's not the way it works. We die, and we must be replaced. So it was with the priests. They were not perfect, and so they faced death. And because they faced death, there had to be replacements for them. There had to be more of them. Death is the punishment, it is the consequence of our sin. In a way, it is God limiting our evil. And we see that in Genesis a couple of times. Genesis 3.22, where God says that he won't allow Adam and Eve to remain in the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. They're not meant to live forever in their broken and dying flesh. They are meant to be raised from the dead in order that they might live forever in their glorified flesh. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 and verse 5, where we see that God sets a limit to the age of man, 120 years, that his spirit will not abide in the flesh of man forever, that the thought, the intents of the thoughts of the hearts of men were only evil all the time. 
See, the more time we have, the more destructive we become. So death enters, death caps, death limits our destructiveness in that way. So the former priests are limited. They must be replaced. They must be many in number, but not this one. Verse 24, not this Jesus. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 will go on to say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The doxology of Jude, that last little verse there, verse 25, will say uh, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to God, the Father, and our Savior through our Savior Jesus Christ before time and now and forevermore. Amen. That threefold time statement, before time, so before God had ever even created, now as in, in any present day when that word is read, and forever as in every day for forever to come, Jesus has no beginning and he has no end. He endures forever. He is eternal. And so because he does not end, he does not need to be replaced. There is no new high priest that we get someday. It's Jesus. And it will always be Jesus, now that he has stepped into that place, which we're going to see in this next paragraph. But before we do, let's look at verse 25. Because of this, because he continues in that role forever, he is able to save those who draw near to God through him. So notice, how do we draw near to God? Through Jesus. Through his word, through his forgiveness, one for us on the cross, through his blood shed for us that we then partake of in the Holy Lord's Supper as we eat his body and drink his blood in that bread and in that wine. We through faith in Christ, get to draw near to the Lord. And when we draw near to the Lord, he does not condemn us as our sins deserve because his son Jesus has taken his sins, has taken our sins away from us forevermore. Jesus forgives us. And so as we draw near to God the Father on the judgment throne, the Lord, Jesus intercedes. He saves us. And he brings us into his paradise forevermore. He lives, he always lives to make intercession for them, for you, for us. This is the thing about the high priest. We, we see that intercession idea in the Old Testament. As the people of Israel sin against God, Moses intercedes for them. Not just once, right? Multiple times. Go back and read the account of the golden calf in Exodus 32 and how Moses intercedes for the people before God. The high priest interceded for the people before God on the Day of Atonement. He would go into that most holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple. Just the one time a year he would go all the way in. The only thing in that room is the Ark of the Covenant. He would go in with the blood of the sacrifice through that curtain to the ark and he would splatter the blood on the ark before the ark 
making atonement for himself and atonement for all the people, interceding between God and men. But then he'd leave, and he wouldn't go back for another year if it was even still him at that point because he might have died and had to be replaced by the next high priest. But this Jesus always lives, and not only does he always live, he doesn't have to leave the presence of God because he himself does not need sacrifices to be made clean. He is clean. He is without sin. And so he can remain before the throne of God forever. He can make intercession for you and for me on behalf, on our behalf before God each and every day because he never had to leave. He didn't have to walk right back out of the holy place, the most holy place after making the, the bloodshed of atonement. He offered up his own blood. He laid it down before his father. And he, he stays there, interceding. Our second paragraph, verses 26 to 28, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is our high priest. We were just talking about that. He is holy. So he is holy in both senses of that word that we talk about often. We talk about it as being perfect. Oh, Jesus is that. He was perfect. He is perfect. He kept every law that the Lord ever gave. He walked and worked perfectly in his statutes and kept his commandments. But he's also set apart. From before there was even time, the Lord Jesus was already set apart for this purpose. Before God created the world, before God knit Adam together, before God knit you and me together, he had already set apart his son, Jesus Christ, to be Savior for us. Innocent, well, that's the perfect thing again, he has committed no sin. Unstained, that's both the sin again, but also the blemish idea that the sacrificial animals offered in the days of the Old Covenant they had to be without blemish. You couldn't take uh, a crippled animal that you knew wasn't going to make it much longer anyway and offer that. That was not pleasing to the Lord. You could not take an animal that's stained. They have to be perfect. And so was this Lamb of God perfect. Separated from sinners. That is on the, the bigger picture scale. Simply the statement that we are sinners and he is not. Separated from us in that sense. It's not that he had nothing to do with us. Quite the opposite. We see that in his ministry. He goes right to the people. He goes right to the worst of sinners. He even goes right to the worst of the unclean. He goes right to them. And he loves them. And he restores them in himself. 
then he's exalted above the heavens. That's an interesting phrase, right? We don't we often think he is exalted into the heavens. Well, remember the the ancient way of thinking about that word heaven, that ancient cultural understanding worldview was that what we think of as the sky is the first heaven, what we think of as outer space is the second heaven, and then what we think of as where God lives as the third heaven. So they have that in common with us. So Jesus is exalted above the sky, above outer space, and he is exalted, I mean, we would probably still want to say into heaven, but in a sense he's exalted even above that because that heaven is passing away. That heaven will not endure. A new heaven and a new earth are going to be created for us, for the people of God. So Jesus is above heaven, superior to it, as is a common theme of this letter. Now, we've already talked about verse 27. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself first because he had none. Other priests had to do that. They would have to offer a sacrifice on their own behalf so that they were then made right, and then they could go make others right. You see this, actually, in many of our congregations in the way that they celebrate the Lord's Supper. That most, I don't know if it's most, that in many places, the pastor will actually commune himself first. And then from that position, he will commune you. He will commune the people. It's not the case everywhere. That's a tradition that's not held everywhere. But it is still seen in many places. And that's the reason for it, really, why. I mean, I think the the way you'd hear it described today is what you've heard so many times probably going on an airplane, that if something were to happen in the case of an emergency, um, seek to put on your own air oxygen mask first, that you may then put oxygen masks on the people around you, that you can help others. So he has done this instead once for all. That's a major theme of Hebrews also is that the sacrifice of Christ does not have to be redone over and over again as those Old Testament sacrifices did. It was good once and for all. Once and for all is in the sense of all time, but also all people, right? One sacrifice of Christ, one sacrifice of divine life, God dying on the cross for us. He offered up himself. Verse 28, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. That's a reference to all of the above, that we die, that we are sinners, that we are not innocent, all of that. The law, the instruction given to Moses at Sinai, the the instruction to have the priesthood, the instruction to do the sacrifices, that appointed the high priest, starting with Aaron and then going through his sons after him. But the word of oath, which came later, appoints a son. So this word of oath is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 4. That is a psalm of David, and it reads like this. Yahweh has sworn 
and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a fascinating study of Scripture. And, in fact, we skipped last week from Hebrews 4 all the way to this week's Hebrews 7, meaning we skipped over every reference to Melchizedek actually in the text. He shows up a couple of times in 5, once in 6, and then a few times here in chapter 7. Well, we don't get it at all here, but that's the reference point, is to Psalm 110, verse 4, which he's already cited, the preacher has cited in verse 17 and verse 21 of this chapter, that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's the word of oath being referred to, which came later than the law, because that that hymn, that psalm, is written by David, you know, probably 400 or so years later, a little over 400 years later. So you have this oath that God himself has made, that Jesus, his son, will step into this role forever. He is made perfect forever. Now, that made perfect phrase really throws us, I think, as as Christians today, especially as we look to Jesus as being perfect. He doesn't need to be made perfect. Part of that is just the language differences. Um, As you translate out of Greek, you could also translate that as complete or finished. So it's not a reference to the idea that Jesus is now without sin. He always was. It's a reference that his work, his function, the task that he was sent to do has been made perfect. It's been made complete. It is finished as he himself spoke that day on Good Friday on the cross. He is our high priest forever who has shed his blood once and for all to take away our sins that we may draw near to God with confidence because he intercedes for us. He welcomes us into his kingdom. This now brings us to our gospel text from Mark chapter 10, and it's verses 46 through 52. Now, as we're getting started here, you really have to do a look through the whole chapter to get the context of this one. If you don't, you miss the major theme. I mean, what you have in the text, just as a reading by itself, you have the blind man Bartimaeus, and he wants to be healed by Jesus, and Jesus heals him. This is good, right? And it's probably the reason for our connection to the Old Testament text from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 7 through 9. Where was it? It was in verse 8, that God would bring them... to the, well, he'd bring them to himself, and among them would be the blind. God is going to rescue, he's going to redeem, he's going to save his people. But there's more to this chapter, there's more going on in this text. Why did the people try to cast Bartimaeus away? What's that about? So let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll go back and look at the context to see what's going on. So verses 46 to 52, all one paragraph in the ESV. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Like I said, to get the whole picture here, we got to have the context. And if you've been paying attention the last two weeks, you already know where I'm going with that, but bear with me uh, for those who are just jumping in this week. We don't start all the way at the top of the chapter. We don't need the conversation around divorce to get the picture here. It's not that we shouldn't throw it out, right? It's God's word and it's good. But we can start at verse 13 to really pick up on what's happening. And I'm going to go ahead and just point you to the the key point so that I can then show you why all these things fit in. The key point is that the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world, just as he would tell to Pilate on Good Friday. The, The idea is that the disciples have a military champion in their mind. They see Jesus as the Messiah coming to deliver them from the oppression that they face in this world. Uh, Social justice sort of thing. Deliver us from Rome. Rome is evil. Rome is oppressing us. Rome is doing all these terrible things to us. Rome is killing us. Save us. Save us now. Hosanna. Right? That's the picture. They think he's a military champion like the judges in the book of Judges, the deliverers of old, that he has come to rescue them like Joshua or like Samson or David, son of David. But that's not who he is. So let's take a look at how that flows through the chapter. It starts with that little child that he brings into their midst and he says, well, they're they're rebuking the kids. That's key. And that fits into what happens with the crowd in Bartimaeus here in today's text. They are rebuking the children and the parents for bringing the children to Jesus. Why? Does, does that sound odd to you? You wouldn't probably rebuke parents for bringing a child to see your pastor today. What is this about Jesus? Well, the, the key thing here, the idea that's going on here, is what they expect from Jesus. They expect he's starting a war. And a child doesn't have anything to offer to a battle, to a campaign, a military campaign. The child is worthless. He can't pick up a sword to fight. He can't provide for the troops. He's not going to make the armor. He's not going to bring the food. You need something else. So Jesus just doesn't have time for this. He's too busy recruiting. We're about to go to war. Leave us alone. Leave Jesus alone. Let the master be that he can do what he needs to do. Take these kids somewhere else. And Jesus rebukes them. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The point there, quickly summarized, faith like a child is it. We're worthless. We have nothing to offer, and that's exactly the point. 
God saves those who realize they have nothing to offer him. So then we go to the rich man, right? And he has wealth, plenty of it. And he wants to enter the kingdom of God, but he can't. The disciples, having just seen the children and rebuked the children, they're facing the rich man in the opposite direction. They're thinking, yeah, this man can get into the kingdom of God. He has stuff to offer the kingdom. He can, he's a man, so he can fight, but he's also wealthy, so he can buy our armor. He can buy our weapons. He can, he can really support this cause, Jesus. Jesus sends him away. He actually told him to get rid of all of that, get rid of all of the the wealth because he knew it was the idol on the man's heart. He was seeking to save the man by getting him to confess faith in Christ. Just to summarize that account again quickly. But the man couldn't do it, so he leaves and he takes his money with him. Jesus again, for the third time, tells his disciples that he's about to die. We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. They don't get it. They look right past it, and then you get the conversation from James and John that they want to sit at his right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. They're not picturing the cross right? They're picturing a throne right there in Jerusalem, just like David had, where Jesus is king over Jerusalem. They have their own nation. They're no longer bothered by Rome. They want seats of power to sit right by the king. Well, take that to the crucifixion. Take that to the cross. Take that to the two thieves crucified, one on his left and one on his right. That's what it looks like to reign with Jesus in his kingdom. They don't get it. And the text continues, and that brings us then to Jesus flipping it over on them, right? You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's your context in the whole chapter that leads us up to what's going on with the blind man. So let's resume our text now. They have come to to Jericho, which is 15 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. So they're getting close, right? 15 miles could be traveled in a day on foot if you really went a long way. Wouldn't be a pleasant day, but you could do that. So they're not far away from Jerusalem at this point. And as they're leaving Jericho, as our context, they are joined by a great crowd. This crowd is going along with them. Why? What do they think is about to happen? They think Jesus is to start an uprising in Jerusalem. That he's gathering troops. He's gathering people to himself to, to fight back against the wickedness of Rome and perhaps even the Jewish leaders of that day in some people's minds. So there they are, that massive group traveling together, and Bartimaeus, a blind man, cries out from the roadside. So he's not not among the group because he can't see. 
he cries out. Now, why does he cry out? Well, first, verse 47, he heard it was Jesus. So word has spread that Jesus has come. He has heard of Jesus. He has heard that Jesus can heal. He has heard of the miracles that Jesus is capable of doing. And he has faith that Jesus can do that for him too. That Jesus can take his blindness, the ailment caused by sin in this broken world, and he can restore it. That Jesus can fight back against his sinful flesh and restore him. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a title of the Messiah. He believes that Jesus, whose name means he saves, he believes this he saves man is going to be the one who saves him. The Messiah, the promised son of David that would sit on the throne of Israel forever. 2 Samuel 7. He is the messianic king. This is a statement of faith from Bartimaeus. Now the crowd rebukes him. Just like the disciples rebuked the people and the children earlier in the chapter, the Messiah has no time for you. The Messiah cannot stop. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to deliver us. He doesn't have time for the likes of the blind. That's the mind of the people. This blind man, just like the children, has nothing to offer to a kingdom. Right? It's the way you would look at the poor among us today. Politically speaking, they're worthless. They're a drain on society. They don't support themselves. Okay. The Lord loves them anyway. So should we. But back to the point here, they rebuke, but it doesn't work. He keeps crying out, and all the more, which makes it sound, the way that English comes across makes it sound like he's probably crying out louder, although the louder word isn't actually used. So maybe he just kept saying it. It's the other way to take that. And he calls him son of David again, showing his faith. And Jesus hears him, and he stops just like he did with the kids, right? He let the kids come to him. He even instructed them to let the kids come to him. So now he hears the cry of a blind man and he stops. Jesus is not too busy. In fact, this is part of why he's come, is to restore the pain and the grief and the brokenness of his people. And he's going to do that for Bartimaeus, although he's going to do it for him in a much greater way within the next week's time as he hangs on the cross. So he stops and he calls, well, he actually tells the crowd, call him. And they do. Now, who, I guess we should argue, should make the case, is this the crowd? Is this the disciples? The text doesn't say. Maybe it's both of them together. You know, just Jesus in the midst of the large group says, call him, bring him to me. And they do it. So they call him. 
And their phrase has been turned upside down, right? Before they rebuked him, they told him to be silent. Now they say, take heart, get up, because he was sitting down on the side of the road. Get up, he's calling you. Take heart also could be translated, have confidence, be courageous, be be couraged. (laughs) He is calling you. And as soon as he hears that, what is his response? He casts off his cloak He sprang up and he came to Jesus. He might not be able to see, but he's excited to see his Lord, to be with his Lord, his Messiah. I mean, imagine it. Suffering as you are if Jesus called you to come to him. Well, you don't actually have to imagine that because he has, right? He has called you by the gospel. You are his. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And I slowed that down to focus on those three things. What is this? Is Jesus making him an offer? Not quite. Not, not as I'm reading it, at least. More of a... What do you expect? Jesus looking at the blind man, looking at Bartimaeus and saying, Who do you think I am? Just like the rich young man. Jesus is trying to get the rich young man back in, which verse was that? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is good. Jesus is God. He was trying to get the man to confess it. To say who Jesus is, confess your faith. And so he does it here. What do you want me to do for you? What do you expect from me? Who do you think I am? What do you think I can do? And the blind man responds, and he responds rightly, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Rabbi means teacher. It's used three other times in the book. Peter says it twice, once in chapter 9, verse 5, and again in chapter 11, verse 21. Judas Iscariot says it in the garden in chapter 14, verse 45. This isn't quite rabbi. In fact, in some English translations, they'll actually spell it out with an O-N, rabboni, rabboni, however you'd pronounce that, rabbi, probably rabboni. Anyway, Jesus here that same word will be used of him only one other time, and that would be by Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, verse 16, where she thinks that they have taken the body away. She thinks that Jesus is the gardener, and as soon as he says her name, Mary, she responds, Rabboni. Same word in Greek as we have here. So, faith Well, he's already shown faith in his other statements, and he's going to show it with what he says next, so why not that word too? Let me recover my sight. So what he wants is his sight. He wants to see again. That's clear. That's easy in that way. And it's easy for Jesus too, and he's going to do it. But the faith is in these words. Let me recover. He speaks as though Jesus is in control. He speaks as though Jesus has the ability to simply do it. Let me recover. Not even give me. 
Just let it happen. And it does. But look at Jesus' response to him. Look at what happens next. Jesus said to him, go your way. And I'm going to pause on that. Because fitting with our conversation about the context, the, the disciples would have been screaming inside of their own heads right there in that moment. What? Go your way? If Jesus just healed him, why send him away? We could use him as part of that army. Right? Go your way. Jesus isn't calling him to that. Interestingly enough, he actually called the the rich man to follow him with nothing. And now he heals the blind man and he's willing to send him away. Why? Well, he can go out and tell others. Interesting, right? Your faith has made you well. That's a common thing Jesus says in his healing miracles. He attributes it to their faith. Just as today, your faith is what receives the gifts of Jesus. It's what receives his word. It's what receives the the Lord's Supper uh, and the gift of forgiveness given to you there. Immediately, he recovered his sight. Immediately, just as Mark loves to say, and he followed him on the way. On the way to Jerusalem? Probably. We could also think about it, though, as on the way, as in, like, the name of the Christian church before they were called Christians. They were the way. This man has joined the church. He has joined the flock. He has joined his good shepherd. And whereas the rich man would not follow Jesus to Jerusalem to die, Bartimaeus, well, he follows Jesus to Jerusalem, at least, where we'll see the text continue in the weeks to come. Oh